you know, back maybe about 50 years ago, over 70% of the uh, folks that served in the United States Congress, the men who served in the United States Congress, they had, had served in the military. And now that number is down to 18%. And I think that that has an incredible relation to the, the lack of you know care and concern about the country and uh, a disregard to the oath that they're supposedly have taken to the Constitution. My guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. Colonel West was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, in the same neighborhood where Dr. Martin Luther King once preached. Following his graduation from the University of Tennessee, Colonel West entered the Army, becoming the third of four generations of military servicemen, all combat veterans in his family. In November of 2010, Colonel West was elected to the United States Congress, representing Florida's 22nd District. He currently serves as chairman of the Republican Party of Texas. His most recent book, We Can Overcome, an American Black Conservative Manifesto, urges black America to return to conservative principles, the same principles that once had entire black neighborhoods building wealth and thriving. I recently sat down with Colonel West to talk about the history of the black community and the values that enabled them to improve their lives to overcome. Colonel West, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I was looking forward to it for the last several weeks when I heard you coming on the show. I started reading your book. I finished it this morning. All right, a lot of great stuff. Well, thanks for having me, Charles. And I just think that the, the book We Can Overcome is very important when we look at this divisive race, racial uh, narrative that's being proliferated across the country. And, you know, you consider what Senator Tim Scott said in his response to uh, Joe Biden's address last week when he said America is not a racist country. And look at all of the flack that he's taken to include a uh, Democrat county chairman from down here in Texas is called Senator Scott and Oreo. Is that, is that crazy? You know, the, the, the party which says that they're, they're all for fairness and social justice with name calling. I just don't get that. I just don't. Well, get that. when you talk about systemic racism, that's an, another reason why the book had to be written. Uh, you look at their history. You look at, you know, the documentary Uncle Tom, and it talks about the history of that Democrat Party. And if there ever been purveyors of systemic racism, it comes from the Democrat Party all the way up to today. Yeah, Colonel, I want to get into that because uh, I loved this book. Uh, I didn't mention the title of it. And uh, it, it's, it's a fantastic book, We Can Overcome. Uh, I, I, first of all, there's a lot into that. I want, I want to get into that in just a moment. But what I really liked about your book is you put so much history in there. You gave the background. the demo, And it's, this is the Republican Party is the party of Lincoln, the party that freed the slaves. And the Democrats were always against that throughout history. You put the turning point around Kennedy. I want to talk to you about all that. But before we do that, I always look when a person writes a book who they dedicate it to. Because that tells you something which most people skip over. It really gets to what drove you, what you, who you had in mind, and who you have to thank. And your book, one person I know, one person's well-known, one person I didn't have enough. I really, I thought I knew, but I didn't. And that is... Booker T. Washington and Henry O. Flipper. Tell me why you dedicated the, 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 your book to these two people. Well, I don't exist if it weren't for those two uh, men. Booker T. Washington is the man that I call the father of black conservatism. 
when you understand his basic principles for establishing Tuskegee Institute down in Alabama, it was education, entrepreneurship, and self-reliance. Those are conservative principles. And uh, I wish that we had more of that being proliferated throughout the black community. And Henry O. Flipper is very simple. Henry O. Flipper was the first black graduate of West Point. So in other words, he was the first black commission officer in our United States Army. He made it possible for me. And the other great thing about Henry O. Flipper is that uh, he's a Georgian, just like the guy that you're talking to right now. All right, beautiful. That's great, man. All right, so uh, your book starts February 7th, am I right? February 7th, 1961. You're born in a hospital in Atlanta in the historic uh, Fourth Ward, the Fourth District. Fourth Ward, the old Fourth Ward neighborhood. Old Fourth Ward neighborhood. But I think what was so telling about that book, and it was just brilliant how you wove that in, is this was a hospital at the time that was specifically for blacks. Yeah, Hugh Spalding Hospital, which was part of the Grady Hospital system at the time that I was born, was blacks only. Of course, today, Hugh Spalding Hospital is a children's hospital. But again, when you want to talk about what I have seen, what I experienced, and what I have been able to achieve in this incredible country, you know, think about the fact that in 1961, that's not long ago, that was 60 years ago, you know, I was born in a blacks only hospital. But what did I go on to be able to accomplish here in this incredible land is that you know, your dad's just a corporal in World War II in a, a segregated army, and you become a battalion commander, lieutenant colonel that led troops in combat. You know, I get the opportunity to become a member of the United States House of Representatives and to represent the highest per capita income zip code in the country at that time. That was Palm Beach Island. And guess you know, who had property in the congressional district I was honored to represent? Mar-a-Lago. Right. Donald Trump. Yeah. And uh, Rush Limbaugh were, were constituents of mine. And so when you think about in you know that short period of time, a kid can be born in the inner city of Atlanta, Georgia, to, in a Blacks-only hospital. And then that's what he gets to grow up to be. And now I'm the chairman of the largest Republican state party in the United States of America, and that's in Texas. So those are the messages that we need to get out instead of the messages that we hear that of being a victim instead of being a victor. Right. Your, your story is really the American dream, regardless of what color. It doesn't matter what creed. You came from humble beginnings. You worked your way up, and the lubricant there was education, uh, also a great family, mother and father devoted to you, a stable family life. And you have one chapter in the book, and it's, wow, it's a killer, Decimation of the Black Family. Yeah, I, I really and truthfully believe that this was something that was intentional from the progressive socialist left. Because Charles, even though I was born a Blacks-only hospital in 1961, the two-parent household at that time was in the black community was somewhere between 75 and 77 percent, mothers and fathers in the home. You did not see kids in my neighborhood that did not have a mommy and a daddy in the home. And that was so constructive. That was so important uh, in the way that we grew up. And as a matter of fact, in Proverbs 22, 6, one of my favorite verses, it says, train up a child in the way that they should go so that when they grow old, they shall not depart from it. Uh, but we, uh, yet what you saw happen with the Great Society programs of Lyndon Baines Johnson, the complete decimation of the black family, slowly but surely. So today, you only have 24% of uh, little black boys and girls that have a mother and a father in the home. And look at the problems that we see in the inner city communities today. So let's go back for a second. How did the black community, which was the party of 
the Republican Party was their party. It was the party that freed the slaves, was created, correct me if I'm wrong, because you know history better than I, it was created for uh, freeing the slaves, the Republican Party. Yep, single issue, 1854. Right, so here it is, and and the black community, and I, I know it's always bad to broad stroke, but if you just look at the numbers, my gosh, they vote they vote for the Democrats. Where did where did where did it go off the rails? Well, back when uh, Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy were running for president, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was in prison in jail in Birmingham. And so both of the respective uh, campaigns asked their uh, candidate to, you know, reach out to Coretta Scott King, you know, offer their condolences and, and show some sympathy and concern. Well, the thing is that Richard Nixon refused to do so. Uh, but the rumor got out, never been confirmed, but the rumor got out that John F. Kennedy did. And so I will tell you, Charles, you know, from that moment on, growing up down south, every single uh, living room in a black community had three pictures. It was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Martin Luther King Jr. and John F. Kennedy. And then on top of that, when Kennedy is assassinated, Lyndon Johnson, who is a very skilled politician, he looked at a way that he could leverage uh, the Civil Rights Act and things of this nature to get black support. And there was a very disparaging comment that he made on Air Force One to some Southern uh, governors to get them to support it. But, you know, right now we're having this discussion in the country about the filibuster. Well, the longest ever filibuster in mm -hmm. U.S. history were the Senate Democrats yeah. filibustering against the Civil Rights Act. Yeah. The Civil Rights Act passed because of Senator Everett Dirksen and Senate Republicans. But the thing is that, as George Santayana once said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. That's why we don't hear this history being taught. We don't hear it being discussed because there's this uh, narrative out there that Republicans have always been racist when they were the ones that found, you know, started, did the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The very first black members of the United States House of Representatives and Senate were black from down south. So, yeah, and, and, and you know, the, the, the black family, right? So the nucleus of the black family, black family, LBJ gives out checks to women. mothers, yeah, women who have children, but tell us what that stipulation is. They only get that check if? They cannot have a working man in the home. And so what the government actually did is they came in and replaced that entity that had been so strong in the black community, a, a principled, dedicated, loving father who was there in the house were helping to, to, to raise his, his children with his wife. And so they destroyed the two-parent household with the government largesse. In other words, like I said, they started to create victims and not victors. And how does this tie change? Well, I think you're starting to see it happen a little bit because people are becoming more uh, realizing what's going on. And that's why, you know, people like myself or Senator Tim Scott or Candace Owens or whomever, black conservatives are so viciously assailed by the progressive socialist left. You know, when you think about an organization like Black Lives Matter, you know, my response to them is always which Black Lives Matter? Yeah, you don't talk about the black lives have been decimated uh, because of the loss of a, a family structure. You don't talk about the black on black crime. You don't talk about the 20 million black babies murdered in the womb since 1973 in Roe v. Wade. You don't talk about the black kids that don't have the opportunity of good quality education like I had because these inner city communities are really, you know, failing public schools you know, and the, the teachers unions are, are dominant. 
So that's what we have to do. We have to go on offense. We have to talk about these things. And don't get uh, reticent or recalcitrant when someone calls you a name, which is what the left always does. Why are they so bothered? You know, let's, 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 let's put this, you know, right on the table. I look at you and I say, okay, here's a guy came from, didn't have a born with a silver spoon in his mouth, had working, really, parents who, your mom worked also, I believe, in the Marines, right? Yeah, worked for a Marine headquarters in Atlanta. Okay, so you opted for education, strong family. Your father wanted you to be an officer, challenged you, I think, to be an officer. Yeah, you're 15. Okay, you stayed in school, you excelled, you went on, uh, you went to the Army, you worked your way up, you made a career of it, you got out of the Army, you were a congressman, now the Republican chairman in Texas. Mm-hmm. How, let me take the other position, for example. What can I say that you are not an exception? What, what can I say? Why, why, why do they look at you as the exception? Why do they call you names or, or the Uncle Tom or, or you hear with Tim Scott Oreo or terrible, terrible things? Why is that? Because we're a threat to their narrative. Uh, and, and that's really why you see the, the black community being replaced by the Hispanic community because they need a new dependency society. So that's why they have the borders that are open. They've already done what they needed to do to the black community. And uh, we are now the, the second largest minority population. And every weekend we are just killing ourselves off in these cities that are run by Democrats. So if you allow a, a, a voice like mine or a Senator Tim Scott, or even think about a Condoleezza Rice, uh, you allow those voices to be preeminent in the country, then it defeats their narrative. Now, what do they do? They also employ what I call the uh, the 21st century ec- economic plantation gatekeepers, the uh, overseers, the, those black progressive socialists that they unleash upon black conservatives to uh, you know make people fear uh, standing up and speaking out against these policies. Uh, and so, you know, when I think about someone like a Barack Obama and all of the incredible work that he could have done, how he could have reversed this, how he could have taken a greater stand, it wasn't important to him. The only thing that was important to a Barack Obama was to drive out the black community in droves for this historical moment and to include uh, white Americans, all Americans, because we wanted to move past that thing called slavery, segregation, what have you. But now what do you see them doing, uh, Charles? They're just bringing us right back to it. So truthfully, in their minds, we will never be able to overcome this thing called uh, racism or slavery, what have you, because they're going to continue to use it as the new tool of Marxism. Instead of class division, it is a racial division. So it's in their best interest to keep this garbage going on and on and just literally helping to suppress and destroy the black community. Yeah, they're going to continue to perpetuate it because, uh, again, if you want to talk about a genocide, um, I think in, I don't know the numbers of 2020, but the numbers in 2019, I think were 12 unarmed black men were shot by white police officers, 12 in 2019. But since Roe v. Wade in 1973, 20 million black babies have been murdered in the womb. Now, this comes at the hands of a organization, Planned Parenthood, that was founded by a white supremacist, a racist by the name of Margaret Sanger, who referred to blacks as undesirables and weeds. But yet the first quote unquote uh, candidate for presidency, female candidate for, for, for presidency, Hillary Clinton, received a Margaret Sanger award. 
but no one wanted to discuss that. No one wanted to call that out. And so again, I think that it is this narrative that they want to have out there that keeps the 21st century economic plantation, where now it is not about harvesting cotton. It is about harvesting votes. That's what the Democrats want. So why aren't, and, and people like yourself, why aren't, why aren't these inner city communities embracing you and having you stand up there to be the Zara World, Sharptons and Al Sharptons and Jesse Jacksons? They're out there. They're working really hard telling black people what they are. You're telling them what they could be. Well, that's the whole purpose of the book. If you think about the title and how that title is juxtaposed, you know, it, you know, so many people say we shall overcome. Well, shall is a passive verb. That's why I said we can overcome because can is an active verb. And what I tried to do in the book is say, this is how we reverse this. This is how we get back to blocking and tackling. This is what I remember the black community being and what do we need to do to, to get back to that. And so I think slowly but surely we are, we are turning that page. We're turning that corner, but it's going to take some time. I believe that we may have lost one, maybe two generations in the black community and these charlatans that are consistently brought out. And, and think about the words of uh, Joe Biden when during his campaign, he said that uh, if you don't vote for me, you ain't You're black. black yeah. uh -oh. And these type of things that we allow people to say and get away with it. But uh, I think we're getting to the point where in the black community, people starting to realize my color does not define my thought process and my ideology. Where are you seeing that? How are you seeing that? Well, when I talk to a lot of these young black conservatives, when I look at some of the, the, the things that are happening now, you know, the fact that Donald Trump got the most minority electoral support of any Republican president or candidate for presidency in 60 years, that means in my lifetime, it means that we're getting back to understanding. Uh, when you look at a documentary like Uncle Tom, I don't know if you've seen that, but that documentary has, has had incredible inroads and it's causing people to think, it's causing people to challenge, you know, this status quo, this, this darkness that uh, they've been wandering around in. So I think slowly but surely we're getting it out there. And again, it's just so blatantly obvious when you talk about systemic racism, there's only one political party that has been the purveyors of systemic racism. We just have to have the courage to go out there and challenge them. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. You hear that? That's what turkeys sound like. You know what else sounds like turkeys? This. There's a lot of value there. How do you see that? Yeah, you really have to break it up into the sections of healthcare. Wall Street talking heads with no chance of helping you make big money in stocks. Why? Because they can't. According to Standard & Poor's, 92% of active fund managers underperform their benchmark. 92%. 92%. And you know who suffers for it? Millions of Main Street Americans just like you. That's why Charles Mizrahi is on a mission. A mission to help one million Americans take back their financial future in a way that's easy to use and profitable. And with nearly 100,000 people already on their way, you could be next. So don't listen to the turkeys. Instead, listen to how America's number one alpha investor, Charles Mizrahi, could help you make more money in two weeks than most investors make in two years. To see how, go to investingpatriots.com. That's investingpatriots, all one word, dot com. I guarantee you'll be glad you did. You know, it just gets me when you look at under President Trump, you had the lowest black, I really had lowest unemployment, but the lowest black unemployment, lowest Hispanic unemployment, lowest Asian, 
wh- why aren't they getting this? Like I'm looking at the numbers and I don't, if, if I just look just at the empirical evidence, something is ch- changed during the past four years that is making that possible. And now we're going backwards. Well, I think the thing, you have to go and read the book, uh, Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. And a couple of those rules of his, I mean, you uh, you just repeat the negative and push it to be a positive, And you uh, pick the target, isolate it, you freeze it, and you continue to you destroy it. The left was never going to talk about the issues on their media platforms. They were only going to talk about one thing, and that's you got to hate Donald Trump. The orange man is bad. And so I think what President Trump should realize, if he could do something, something uh, retrospectively is he has to realize that they made him the issue uh, instead of the issues being, you know, the economy, uh, unemployment, national security. Think about all the things that he did in the black community, uh, support to historical black colleges and universities, criminal justice reform, uh, economic and education opportunity zones, but they were not going to talk about these things. So I think it would have behooved the president to make himself less of the uh, the focus, less of the target, and then get out there on a lot more of those black media platforms. So when you're going out to college campuses, when you're speaking, I know one or two, I, I, I just saw on YouTube quickly, uh, uh, they, I think a whole bunch of people, like I'm thinking you're a colonel, like you care, a bunch of college kids got up and walked out. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it, what, how silly is that? But mm-hmm. what is your reception when you go on college campuses? Well, you know, you're always going to have that that uh, group of naysayers, and it doesn't bother me whatsoever. Uh, one of the things you can go and Google a video of a young black female at Northwestern University. You know, Charles, they invited me up there to talk about the Iranian nuclear agreement. And, you know, for a guy from Georgia, I thought I did a pretty good job. But the first question was this young black female that came up and said, do you identify as black? Well, what's it? I, I saw that. She was black. I thought she was white. No, she was black. I, I couldn't I mean, be- First of all, I, I, I can't believe you didn't yell at her, the disrespect, and she said, I'm not finished, and she shouted you down till she finished. First of all, where, what, kind of, what kind of kid is raised that way? What kind of parents are that where someone is older than you, she totally disrespected you? Well, that's one of the things that you have to confront. But what I believe is that if you have the high ground, you don't need to raise your voice. You just need to draw your opposition in, your ideological opposition in, and you just destroy them with the facts. And that's what I did in engaging her. And the interesting thing is that later on in that uh, that seminar, that forum, she came back to the microphone. She apologized. Oh, I didn't because, see that. I didn't see that. Oh, yeah, that. That wasn't the thing. But, you know, think about it. I mean, now she is a, you know, I think a million or two million people have seen this. And how embarrassing for her to come up before a person that's a retired lieutenant colonel, former member of Congress, and be so disrespectful and be so condescending as to ask me if I identified as black. You know, but I, I just got so upset when she's yelling at you, I'm not finished, and you were answering her question. Like, forget forget anything. The fact that you're older, you're old enough to be her father and talk to that's just a breakdown of, 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 of societal bounds. That's what the left has done. Uh, you know, because I remember the biggest beatdown I got from my dad, Charles, was when I was down in his hometown where he grew up as a kid, Cuthbert, Georgia. And I wrote about it in, in my book. Um, and and my dad, when I came back in, I was playing basketball, goofing off with some of the friends down there. He floored me. He knocked me clean off my, my feet. And the reason was because I was walking back home and the old people sit out on the porch. And I was not saying and giving greetings to the people that were sitting out on the porch. 
And so from then on, I knew you always said, good, good afternoon, good morning, ma'am, sir, how you doing, whatever. But we don't have that. And so when you look at that disregard and disrespect of authority figures or being an adult, look at what happens in our, in our schools where these young people don't respect uh, the teachers anymore. The worst thing that could have ever happened to me was for my teacher to call my house. I would do anything that you wanted. I would stay there, sweep the floors, clean the blackboard, whatever. Do not call Buck and Snooks because I knew it would be the longest walk home. I mean, dead man walking. That's exactly what I would have been. You know, good as, as the principals knew this as kids, not, I don't want your mother to come up. I want your father. Now, my father had to lose a day of work and come up to school. Boy, oh boy, <laughs> uh, that I, I can't, I'm still, I'm, I'm just getting nervous about it. Just thinking about it. That, that was just insane. That was just, today, it doesn't matter. The teacher is wrong. The school's wrong. The kid is right. And the parent supports the kid. Yeah, absolutely. And and interesting, in the Black community, it's not always parents. And maybe it's a parent, or maybe it's an aunt, or maybe it's a grandparent, grandmother. And so you have seen a wholehearted decimation of, of that structure, that societal structure that really did make the Black community strong in some of the worst and darkest hours in this country. So... You you really you, I, you got to get me more positive here. Why aren't I'm just not seeing it? Maybe because I live in New York City, and I'm, I'm not seeing. I'm seeing the black community led in a totally different way, and they don't have people like you as role models, and they're not looking to people like they're looking to people like you as outliers, exceptions. I I'm just not seeing this optimism that you're seeing. Tell me why. Well, because you know I, I spent 22 years in the military. And uh, my, my favorite American military hero, hero is uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, the hero of Little Round Top, second day of Gettysburg. And Chamberlain is there, his unit is being decimated. The, the Confederates continue to attack up Little Round Top. He's been shot in the leg. They've run out of ammunition. And what does Chamberlain do? He doesn't fold his tent and say, I'm gonna surrender and retreat. He knew he couldn't. He said, fix bayonets. And so I always believe that if we with uh, resolve and courage stand upon principle, that we will win the day. And, and I just see that happening. Oh, really? And he was a professor of, uh, of uh, in Maine. What was he, a professor of rhetoric. rhetoric or something? Yeah. So, Not a trained military yeah, man. Yeah, crazy, right? The story of America is that ordinary people, when called upon, they do extraordinary things. Yeah. And I think that's for America. Yeah. You know, talk about extraordinary things when, uh, what a segue that is, huh? <laughs> that sounds like a Tonight Show thing. Talking about extraordinary things, when you were serving in Iraq, you did an extraordinary thing, and you stood up. Oh, that was extraordinary. Uh, not many people would have done with you. So could you just share with our listeners what you did and, and how you said I'd go through hell with a gasoline can for my men? Yeah, um, it was amazing. I think that we all have that moment in our lives that could possibly define us. And, and that happened for me back in 2003 as a battalion commander uh, in Iraq. Uh, we had seen an uptick of attacks and uh, we got intelligence saying that uh, some of our operations, our patrol routes and things were being leaked uh, to the bad guys uh, because we had to try to work with the local Iraqi police officers. Uh, and there was one uh, gentleman that was target, uh, fingered to us and uh, we detained him. He was not forthcoming with any information. And so I, 
you know, a psychological intimidation trick. You know, I went down and said that I was going to shoot him and kill him. No intention to do so, but you wanted to let people that this individual know how serious you were. And so I fired uh, my nine millimeter Beretta over his head into a weapons clearing barrel. And he gave us some, some information. And of course I reported myself, I was always forthcoming about it. And so I went through what is called an article 32, which is the military equivalent of a grand jury uh, hearing. And I remember being put on the stand and, and I was asked, you know, when you see all that has uh, come about from the action that you took and you're risking going to jail for eight years, you've lost your career possibly, would you do it again? And that's when I just said, you know, if it's about the safety and lives of my men, I'll go through hell with a gasoline can. And that's what we need to have. And, you know, I don't like politicians. I want leaders, I want statesmen, I want people that are gonna stand up and say what people need to hear, not what they want to hear, uh, and be willing to suffer the ramifications thereof, uh, but they've got to know that they're doing what's right and what's best for the country and what's best for the people that they've been called to lead or to serve. So that was a defining moment for me. And I would have never thought that it was such a big deal when the plane landed and I redeployed back here to, uh, to Fort Hood, Texas from Iraq. But I just think that, you know, you're supposed to stand up for who you are. And what I got that lesson from was my mother, Charles. My mother raised me to, to, with this simple lesson. She said, a man must stand for something or else he'll fall for anything. And so I just tried to be the, the living example of what my mother and father taught me to do because my dad was a combat veteran from World War II. My other brother, older brother was a combat veteran from uh, Vietnam. He was a Marine infantryman. And I remember right before I shipped out for my first duty assignment to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, they said, you got to take care of your men. You know, they will see you as a lieutenant, but you want them to respect you as a man. So at any point, well, you didn't have to report yourself, right? So it, 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 no one would have reported you. Yeah, but you got to do the right thing. Yeah. I, I mean, how, how, old were so, you, how old were you when that happened? Uh, let's see, that was 1993. So I was uh, 42. So 42. So, yeah. you know, you go back to the family, this, you know, you, a lesson that you learn at the feet of your mom of just decency, of doing the right thing. So I, I'm, I'm speaking for you, but I don't think you, it was a nanosecond of doubt of what you were going to do. Well, that, and then you ask the question about reporting yourself, you have to be responsible and accountable for your actions. I did not try to blame anybody else. I did not try to eschew my responsibility or try to get someone to see me as a victim. Uh, I took responsibility for my actions. And, and I think that that is something that really helped in the entire uh, case and the entire situation that I stood up and said, yes, you know, I, I'll write out my statement. I'll explain to you, you know, every second, every minute, exactly what, what I said and what I did. And uh, you'll have to make the decision on that. But what was so interesting, Charles, is that, you know, later on, you know, when I'm a member of the United States House of Representatives and I'm sitting on the Armed Services Committee, uh, as you know, all of the generals have to come in and testify before the Armed Services Committee. Well, the commanding general who brought the charges against me in 2003 in Iraq was the chief of staff of the Army. He had to sit there uh, before me and give his testimony. And, uh, you know, I knew some of the critical priorities that he had for the Army, because I love the Army. The Army made me who I am today. And so I kind of gave him the layup question that he could talk about those priorities and I could support him. And then after the, uh, the hearing, he came up to me and uh, he said, you know, I I'm just incredibly proud of you. Wow. And I said, well, that's, a, that's, that's really nice, man. You imagine him sitting there and seeing you, that would have been, a, that's a turning point. That's, that's crazy, right? 
Uh, yeah, but God's blessing. Yeah, you know, uh, so the military really, you know, if, with your dad, especially with that whole generation, right, the greatest generation, these guys went through hell and back, and the freedoms and the liberties we have are because of the sacrifices they made. Uh, you know, this is before the internet, before Facebook. You didn't see your family for years. You didn't see, you know, family deaths or whatever. You weren't attending when your mama or papa died. You were, it's just a terrible, terrible time. And these 18, 19, 20-year-old kids, you know, won democracy. They, they defended democracy. So yeah. you, your father was a combat vet at a time where it was really hard. You know, there was, yeah. the, the army wasn't, well, it wasn't integrated till oh, Truman. Right. Yeah, it was a segregated army. And, and so, you know, it was so incredible when, you know, you got a dad, and this is why dads are so important. You got a dad that was born in 1920 down south, uh, that grew up in some horrible, you know, conditions, goes off to serve his country in a segregated army. But yet when you are 15 years of age, your dad looks at you and said this, that there's no greater honor than to wear the uniform of the United States of America. And he said, I was just a corporal. Your older brother was a Lance corporal. I want you to be the first officer in our family. That's what two strong parents in a household can do, you know, to give you that balance, to, to teach you about what it means to be a principal person. You know, my mom would say the measure of a man is not how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you get back up. And, and that helped me because she was a big sports fan and she loved me playing football. And a dad who could sit there and say, even though he grew up in a segregated country at the time, he said, boy, go out there and be a soldier, be an officer, lead people and fight and defend this country and the great principles it believes it, it believes it in and it was built upon. That's why coming back to the whole beginning of our discussion, it's so important we get back to understand we can overcome, but it means that you got to restore that incredible strong structure within the household. You know, just for some of our younger listeners, to be a black man in uniform after World War II in the South, where you were invited, that was inviting people to beat you up. People got beat up, people got lynched by just wearing a military uniform. And when they, I remember uh, reading when they were bringing down uh, prisoners of war, German prisoners of war to the mm -hmm. South, they could walk through the cars, the railway cars, and the black soldiers couldn't because they were segregated. Here is the enemy. Yeah. Well, you know, the uh, the German POWs had the opportunity to go to movie theaters <laughs> and, and other things of that nature, which the black soldiers couldn't. But, but see, that's the true testimony of that greatest generation uh, of young of black men that fought for this country, Tuskegee Airmen, uh, the the Triple Nickel, the first airborne paratroopers, the uh, the Montford Point Marines, was that they knew that their service and their sacrifice and their commitment would open doors for someone like myself, and so that's why you know coming back to what you asked me about the dedication of the book, imagine you're Henry O. Flipper, you're the only black man at West Point, what he had to endure, what he had to go through. And even the army tried to court martial him out, but of course, you know, his record has been, uh, you know, restored. But think about what he did in, in, in sacrificing so that I could be here. What year was that? What year was he in West Point? Uh, that was uh, the, uh, after the Civil War, I think. I'd have to go back and, and, and check my head. But, but again, think about how, right. how rough it was and what he went through. And he was the 9th and 10th Cavalry. 
the the people that were out here, these black men that were out here, you know, protecting the settlers and, and safeguarding the wagon trains as they were moving westward and how they couldn't even go into some of the towns that they were protecting but yet they still protected those towns. See, that's a part of the history that we need to teach, not this 1619 crap, okay? We need to remember Christmas addicts, the black man who lost his life in the Boston massacre. We need to remember the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, uh, you know, from the glory, the first black soldiers in uniform. But remember, they could not have an officer, so it was white officers that commanded them. So all of these things are part of the history that I want to carry on. And and the great thing about my dad is that his grandson, uh, that he did not get to see uh, this happen to, but his grandson is now Lieutenant Colonel in the United States Army. My, my, uh, my nephew, my older brother's son, and he's done three combat tours of duty. He's a paratrooper, he's an artillery officer, just the same as I was. Wow. And that all came from a simple man born in 1920 in Alabama. Yeah, in Alabama, wow, wow, wow. You know, I wanna ask you this one thing. Uh, in Israel, it's a citizen army. Every mm -hmm. male and female uh, has to serve three years. I think the female is down to two years. I'm not really sure. And then there's a many years of, um, of um, reserve. reserve duty. And for those who are more observant, there's even service. They, the women and men don't have to go. But even now, the ultra-Orthodox are going to the army. But put that aside, the, there's service where you have to work in a hospital, a school, everything. What are your thoughts? Because look what the military made out of you. Look what it did to your father. Look what it did to your family. What are your thoughts? And I've always thought about this a lot when you see these young kids. If we had some type of service program for two years after high school, work anywhere in this country in charity work, work in a hospital, work in parks. If you don't want to go to the military, that's fine. That's fine. I, 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 whatever it might be. But some type of public service to be grateful that what you have here wasn't was given to you on a silver platter because people sacrificed. No, I absolutely and wholeheartedly agree with you, Charles, and that there should be some semblance of national service. When I look at these young kids, you know, joining groups like Antifa or Black Lives Matter, you know, they're out there chanting no borders, no walls, no USA at all. You know, that's absolutely appalling because so many men and women have laid down their lives for this great nation that they live in. And they need to understand how great it is and how to give back to it. There's something, you know, bigger and better than their iPad, iPhone, or their, you know, triple mocha, latte, coffee. So I, I do think that we should have some form of national service. I don't, I'm not, you know, a fan of, you know, compelling people to join the military in the United States of America, because as a former commander, I don't want to spend all of my time with a couple of bad apples. They really don't want to be there. The difference when you look at a country like Israel, uh, they're surrounded by bad people and they understand that their survival and each and every one of them uh, must stand up and, 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 and take that place on the wall. But yes, without a doubt, we need to get back to understanding what service is. And think about this. I mean, you know, back maybe about 50 years ago, over 70 percent of the uh, folks that served in the United States Congress, the men who served in the United States Congress, they had, had served in the military. And now that number is down to 18%. And I think that that has an incredible relation to the, the lack of you know, care and concern about the country and uh, a disregard to the oath that they're supposedly have taken to the Constitution. You know, it's easy to talk about taking a knee during the, during the, stars, during the national anthem. But where, if you were a soldier, you, just forget about the soldier for a second, because that's a special class of amazing people. 
if you did national service, and here's what I was always thinking, and tell me if I'm off, off, you know, off the charts on this. You have to do national service, even one year, one year after, after high school, one year after high school, and it has to be at least 90 miles away from your home. So you can pick wherever you want, parks department. This is where we get people from one side of the country going to another side of the country, just seeing how different people live. You learn to have more tolerance toward people who are not like you. And more importantly, you channel all this energy and, 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 and anxiety that a lot of these young people have towards good. You, you're not going to be the same person if you worked for, I don't know, if you, would, if you were helping the Red Cross uh, during a flood or, or no. working in a hospital. You're not going to be that same person. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, one of the things that I saw in the military is when you bring in people from all different aspects of life, from all different parts of the country, uh, then they become a team. And, and that's the beauty of, of the military is that it takes individuals and it turns them into a team that are focused on one thing. And that's defending the Constitution of the United States of America. That's the oath that we take. And so I do agree that it's so important that we start to, you know, challenge our young people and, and stop coddling them and uh, stop treating them like they're perfect. And uh, and then when they fail, they believe that, you know, everything is ended. We got to encourage them to get back up and continue to try. This is not a zero defects life that you're living. So I think that's an important step as we go forward as a nation. All right. Think about Lincoln, how many times he lost, uh, you know, political races, but yet he became one of our greatest presidents. You think about uh, Harry Truman and how he was such a failure as a businessman or whatever, but yet he went on to become one of our great presidents, just a simple man. So it comes back to what I said, ordinary men and women doing extraordinary things. Yeah, you know, uh, by the way, you start this, I'm right behind you. I, I, think, it's, I, I think it's just so simple to me because it creates an ethos in the country and you know, it's your, your history buff, and you know this, right? It was only after the Civil War that uh, we weren't calling ourselves Virginians or New Yorkers. We started calling ourselves Americans. It, it took the Civil War to do that. I'm thinking an easy, not an easy solution, but a practical solution is we get people from, young people, is to, to start seeing there's something bigger than themselves because we, they grew up in the generation that everyone's a winner, everyone gets a trophy. Well, that's not the way life yeah. works. Yeah, that's the culture of the participation trophy. And that was something very terrible that we did to young people, believing that uh, we could give them self-esteem. Uh, my mom and dad taught me that self-esteem only comes by doing esteemable things, mm -hmm. not sitting on the bench and uh, you get a trophy for sitting on the bench. I mean, let me tell you something, Charles, you know, my mommy and daddy did not come to watch me sit on the bench. And they told me to practice harder, to uh, to go out there and you know do do better drills or what have you. But just don't sit back there and allow someone to give you a plastic trinket to make you feel good when you did not contribute anything. So we need to get more young people onto the playing field and off the sidelines or even off the out of the stands. You know, there was one in my in my son's school when he was in eighth grade or seventh grade. One of these parents said, you know, we have to give all the kids uh, a trophy. And I said, but isn't the diploma, isn't the graduation, isn't that the trophy? And those who excelled get a trophy? No, we have to show them they're all equal. All right, I didn't win that argument. So they gave all the kids a trophy, and those who excelled, like in math or whatever, got another trophy. So in 30 seconds, these kids figured out, oh, you got the BS trophy. <laughs> like, they, for this, oh, yeah. just to show up. We're not stupid. No, they're not. They keep score. And really what you're talking about is – the difference of my life and what socialism would do. You know, my life and, and so many others is defined by a quality of opportunity. 
But what the left wants to do in America is equality of outcomes. Wow, nice, and nice. Never work. Yeah, that, that's a great. That's that's great. So, what what's the future hold for you? Now you're chairman of the of the Republican Party in Texas. Where are you going from here? You know, I trust in the Lord, and and I'll just see where He leads me. And I just want to be a humble and obedient servant to God, country, and Texas. Uh, I don't sit around and try to plot my next move. I just want to be able to be used by by this great nation uh, at a critical time. That that's it. You think he's pointing you toward Pennsylvania Avenue? Is that possible? I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of people that think they should belong on Pennsylvania Avenue. I'm happy to be right over here in, on Eastern Hills Drive in Garlands, Texas. All right, man. That's great. All right, Colonel West, you are not only a fun, you're not a, a, just a hero. You're an inspiration to not only me. But to so many young people who can look at your life and say, you know, that, that's one thing, by the way, in investing, and that's what we do in our newsletter and all, is I always say I don't really have that many original ideas. I try to clone and follow other smarter people. Why, why recreate the wheel? You know, like, you know, I, I just want to stand on the shoulders of giants. And looking at your life and what you've accomplished, and I, and I think your lovely wife, she's a PhD, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. I'm there way outside of my league. Yeah, you I lucked mean. out. You lucked out. And she and she's an immigrant from Jamaica, an immigrant from Jamaica who has a dual uh, bachelor's degree, marketing finance, an MBA and a PhD. And you know what is beautiful? Her dad uh, served 24 years in the United States Army, also a veteran of uh, Vietnam. And I believe he may be the only uh, Jamaican immigrant American that's buried in Arlington National Cemetery. Really? Really? Wow. You know what I find about the Jamaican community? Because we have a large community here in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. That's where she's from. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, they're very like our community, like the Jewish community, in terms of patriarchal family. Everyone gets Mm -hmm. together. Everyone helps everyone else. If you have to take four jobs to get your kid into a private school, you take four jobs. It's all for the family. It's all for education. And... The utmost respect goes to the mom or the papa, and there's no disrespect anywhere else. And everyone cares about everyone else. I think that that has to be the magic. It is the magic. And if there's a closing thought I can can leave, is that we have to get back to making victors and stop making victims. Amen. Amen. Colonel West, thank you so much, and God bless you, and keep doing great work. We need you. Well, you got me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.